Well, hello, hello, hello. Uh, good to be speaking with you again. It's been officially uh, one, two months and one day since I last recorded. Uh, quite a bit of time since then. I've been trying to set up um, um, some things to make to kind of reboot to a season two, including a website and an email address um, where, where uh, my listeners or if you're listening to this, where you could um, send your comments or questions, as well as a forum where I could uh, post all of my research or the sources of my research or the sources that I talk about. I've tried to do this a little bit in the show notes um, up to now, but I want to kind of do it in a more robust and organized fashion um, on a website. And I have been hoping to uh, get this done um, um, bef you know, before my next episode and, and kind of reboot as a season two. Uh, but I can't wait that long. I, or I guess I should have been complete by now. I still, have, still haven't quite gotten there. Um, but I couldn't wait any longer. This, uh, what I'm going to talk about today has been coming back to my mind over and over and over, um, almost every day over these last two months, uh, feeling like I needed to uh, say a few words about this and add my, my thoughts about this into the ether. Uh, for what it's worth. And really, I don't know what it's worth. It's certainly off topic from what I've normally shared, but I can't get this out of my mind. And, and somewhat like Michael Jackson um, shared in his biography in 1980-something, I read it much later than that, but uh, one of the things he mentioned about his music career is he felt like this was not just something he loved or something he wanted to do, but it was something he felt compelled to do. Uh, like it was his mission on earth. And, um, you know, there may be different opinions on how well he executed that mission or the result of his um, pursuits of that. I will say in the 80s, he was a much different artist than he was later on. Uh, but but uh, um, I've, I've kind of felt that same, if I were to, to express how I felt about this and why I come back to revisit the same topic that I would have, First, I first had the thought to discuss um, two months ago, and yet two months has gone by with many moment, momentous and important things happening, especially along the lines that I have uh, recently been using this podcast to, to share, and that is particularly with um, our, our freedoms in regard to medical freedom and the, the deceptions that are out there with regard to the vaccine and COVID and masks and everything like that. Um, but this won't go away, and uh, I really feel I have to share this. Um, so, so what I'm going to share is the topic is Bitcoin, and if you're if uh, it's a it's a topic that I kind of feel like is a, the topic of soccer in the United States. Uh, pretty much everyone's heard about it. There are a few people that are really enthused about it, but most people really don't watch it or, or care about it yet. Um, and, but the number is growing. Its popularity is growing, kind of like you could argue soccer was before COVID hit. And uh, uh, so, so I want to mention a couple of things about how, what has happened over the course of Bitcoin, especially um, with regard to Elon Musk's comments about it. Um, Elon Musk's pattern uh, with regard to all sorts of, all nature of securities and, and, uh, and ways of making money. Um, and just some thoughts about the energy uh, debate around Bitcoin. And so the first is Bitcoin, to, to really understand Bitcoin, one first has to understand why, why there's a kernel of people that are so loyal to the idea. And the, the loyalty to the idea is that it's kind of like the American Revolution in that you're looking, they were searching the, the idea of Bitcoin is a revolution away from tyranny. It is a way of, of breaking, of, of, of moving to a monetary system that is not ruled by the king on high. And still, even with all the other different cryptocurrencies out there, a lot of those other cryptocurrencies still have someone that's in control. They have a board. It might be not be a government, but there's still a board of people that's in charge of it, like Ethereum comes to mind. Super popular, amazing technology, um, does a lot of things that Bitcoin can't do, does a lot of things that almost nothing else can do. At least it was the first on the scene that could do what it does, uh, which is create smart contracts, um, which is a completely different, uh, different 
topic altogether. Uh, but it's still controlled by by a central group of people that can determine what happens with Ethereum. Uh, the amazing thing about Bitcoin, and it truly, truly is genius um, in, in both of its, its decentralization, decentralization of power and authority over the currency, as well as, as, well as its inherent nature of uh, supply and demand and balancing that demand against the capability of, the, of miners and the capability of the current technology and the current demand and the price. Everything is built in to completely balance it out. Um, and, but what, what makes Bitcoin unique is that once it passed a certain threshold, it was no longer um, in a realm where a small group of people could determine what happens with Bitcoin. Um, the more most of what happens with Bitcoin is already written into the program, and for those few decisions that have to be made with Bitcoin, it's made with a supermajority of, or at least a majority of, the uh, stake in Bitcoin, and and so it's completely decentralized. Uh, there's no there's no government that can just come out and say, hey, we're going to uh, we're we're going to say that Bitcoin is worth a tenth of its value now. No one can do that. Um, no government can do that. No government like Argentina did uh, uh, several years ago. They just went into everyone's bank account and took a certain percentage out of everyone's savings. Just like that, with a snap of a finger. They took people's savings uh, as a wealth tax, uh, um, an idea that has also been uh, promulgated by certain politicians in the United States, just grabbing and reaching into people's bank accounts and, and taking those Federal Reserve notes. Uh, that can't be done with Bitcoin. And hence the the appeal to those who know what's going on with the money system uh, that that people that understand money flock to Bitcoin the way that they flocked to George Washington to fight to the, for their freedoms. And so when 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 people think or, or espouse and say, "Oh, this is going to be the end of Bitcoin," for example, when when Bitcoin first hit twenty thousand a few years ago. A small number of years ago, I think it was you know, about three years ago. You can go back and verify. Um, it was, uh, I think it was a little more than that actually. But but uh, but Bitcoin went up to twenty thousand, or roughly twenty between twenty and twenty five thousand, and then pretty much crashed until it finally came down to about a three thousand dollar level. And I remember at the time, I was listening to probably half a dozen podcasts at the time following Bitcoin and uh, and various and various. Uh, 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 thoughts and thought leaders in the Bitcoin community, and uh, some of the, some of the criticisms on the outside of that community, you know, the the typical uh, finance journals and, and newspapers of the time, were heralding the end of Bitcoin. You know, that it was a flash in the pan. It went to twenty thousand. Now it's gone. It's look at look at this. It's cratered to three thousand. And I just laughed. I just laughed because in 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 such a short time, this this currency, this idea that was worth nothing at the start. I mean, the first purchase was a pizza for like ten thousand Bitcoin. I mean, you're talking. I mean, what's a, what's a what's a pizza worth? Probably um, uh, twenty bucks. You know, divide that by ten thousand. You know, we're talking point oh point uh, two cents, a fifth of a cent. You know, was was the value of a Bitcoin at that time, and here we had Bitcoin uh, was now worth three thousand dollars per coin, and people were saying it's the end of Bitcoin. You know, it's just in just a few years it went from a fifth of a penny to three thousand dollars. Yeah, there was a twenty thousand dollar max in the middle of it, but the fact is you had you had this miraculous. You know, you look at you look at the the entire time, and you have this miraculous movement, and and a complete uh, blindness to what was the kernel behind Bitcoin, which was not uh, immediately to use it as a currency, not immediately to even grow wealth, but to support Bitcoin sufficiently and create a, a an environment and an ecosystem that would allow Bitcoin to survive because of the idea. And you had extremely, extremely smart and some some wealthy, some not, but extremely, extremely smart and wealthy and dedicated people that were that were sure to make sure that, that Bitcoin would someday someday succeed. And so I could see 
back then that yeah there was it was dropping it dropped down to 3000 after having been at 300 roughly for a long long time and then it went up to 20000 dropped down to 3000 and stick around there for quite a while and um, and the most of the financial community completely oblivious to what was actually the engine behind bitcoin um, it wasn't the the hedge funds and your your typical stock traders that were writing all the columns and were very familiar with the normal financial instruments that that make the stock market profitable for them it was it was motivated by a completely different and altruistic motivation system that believed in freedom it was about decentralization it was about stepping out from the the foot and the heel of those that controlled the money system particularly particularly it, those that understood the money system in the countries that they were in and not just the united states although certainly in the united states as well but in many countries all over the world sick of governments manipulating their their life's work through their their funding games with their with their own country's currency or the funding games the united states would play which would um which would wreak havoc on everyone else's currency and so that was um, that was their 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 mission, and I could and I could see that this was gonna, this this was a movement that would have legs, even if it wasn't the greatest technology out there. Um, and by that I mean, um, other coins started popping up with with more efficient technologies uh, that would make an ecosystem for their coins easier than Bitcoin was. Um, and and that I liken to to kind of the evolution of TCP/IP. Um, some people have, so I'll come back to another another comparison some people have made with Bitcoin. But I would make the comparison of TCP/IP, the protocol that that was the was the first, the language and the method of communicating over the internet. And so when TCP/IP came out, that meant that protocol for communicating over the internet. The same thing happened. There were a lot of other protocols that came out um, soon after that were actually more adapted to to moving large amounts of data over uh, the technology that existed over the, at that time, but they were latecomers to the game. And TCP/IP won out because that's what what everyone already knew, and so everyone was building new technology uh, to interface with the internet over TCP/IP. And these other competing technologies, even though uh, you know from a limited focus, they were, they may be more effective. Not everyone knew about it. You didn't have the whole world building new programs off of TCP/IP the way you did TCP/IP, and so and so those other those other protocol systems, even though they were theoretically superior, and I say theoretically because uh, in in some regards they may have been superior and others not, but even though they were theoretically superior, you just didn't have enough people working on improving and building technology around those protocols the way you did TCP/IP. And so because you had the whole entire planet working around making TCP IP more usable, that was the protocol that won out. And the way I see Bitcoin is a, is, is, sim, is, is a similar case. You have other coins that have other value that they bring to the cryptocurrency system. And undoubtedly, they will have some of them will win out and be used because of their inherent value. Um, Ethereum is one that I think is is with us to stay uh, because of the idea of smart co contracts there have been other uh, comments of other coins that have have, have similar uh, unique traits uh, that may make them have longer legs um, uh, theta for example um, but but Bitcoin is unique in that it, it continues with that mission of decentralization of power uh, over the money system of that this is a currency that is independent of any one person trying to manipulate it or any group of people or any one country uh, being able to manipulate it. And so because of that, it, it has a level of trust beyond any of the other currencies. Uh, it has, and because it's gotten so big now, the trust level just continues to increase the bigger and bigger it gets and the more and more spread out that um, the, those wallets are. Um, and so a side note on this, um, on currency in general, uh, right now, and I think for for quite a while, it's at least over the next uh, few years, medical freedom is going to be a a big big topic, um, increasing more and more in its importance in our national dialogue and in in 
marking the lines between those who stand for freedom and those who stand uh, for big government and compulsion and this idea of a utopian society uh, with or without the individual rights. Um, uh, individual rights uh, be sacrificed in the name of some sort of uh, utopian society that the globalists promise they can build because they're so smart. And if we would just follow the program, everything would work out. That division is going to become larger and larger. And I think it will center um, uh, uh, a great deal around medical freedom and the right to choose what happens to your own body. And if anyone uh, were to say, well, see, see, there's the there's the argument for uh, the rights to abort one's baby, I would say, no, it's actually not. It's actually the opposite because once that baby is a baby inside of a person, it is no longer that person's body. It's it's a body within a body. And that's the right of that baby that and the innocence of it and its inability to protect itself and to stand up for itself that makes taking away the rights and the life of, of that unborn baby uh, such a heinous crime, really. Uh, taking away the rights of someone who can't, who has their own body and is not able to stand up for themselves uh, while they're in a state of, of a dependence and, and innocence and inability to stand up for themselves, uh, which is where we need to stand up for them. Um, and so that's a different topic. Some of you may, listening may disagree with that. Uh, but, but moving forward, um, the, the discussion will be what kind of rights does someone have around their own body? Are they allowed to choose what they eat? Are they allowed to choose what kind of medical treat interventions occur um, in, their, in their own body? And that is why I've been disappointed in many of the politicians, or not politicians, but, but many of those who have well-established uh, not just podcasts, but, but radio shows, and have by and large ignored this whole situation of the rights of the individual against um, getting an experimental injection. And, and after it's approved and quote unquote not experimental anymore, they're right not to have a vaccine that, that they believe is not in their best interest in their own health. Uh, and I've been disappointed that, that, that so few that I would have expected, well, actually, I didn't, wouldn't have expected them. Uh, to stand up for this, unfortunately, but so few have really uh, have really uh, risen the flag of warning of what this conversation is really about. And uh, but some have, and you, I've mentioned these this to you uh, many uh, several times on previous podcast podcasts. Uh, but it's also I've realized that those that have also have a standard of uh, sharing their information. That is part of why I was attracted to them in the first place. So Del Bigtree on his thehighwire.com, he has what he calls the Highwire Protocol, which is basically every Monday he posts all of his sources and information that he used for his three-hour Thursday broadcast on his, uh, on his channel, which is also as a podcast and is available on various channels such as Brighteon and and obviously the highwire.com and is also, you know, um, on audio as a podcast. But on Monday, if you get on his list, you can see all, of, you know, he, he emails out all of his sources that he used for that Thursday broadcast. And as part of what he calls the highwire protocol protocol. And I realized that the, the people that I have, that I have most enjoyed following are those people that, that cite their sources and are very, have very, very reliable sourcing, um, that are unlike, you know, uh, Glenn Beck is great in some ways, and he'll say, yeah, go out. Don't just trust me on this. Go out and do the research. But, I mean, you really have to do the work to go out and do the research. He doesn't make it easy. He, he wouldn't actually, or at least, you know, he posts those sources as easily as, say, Del Bigtree does, actually handing you the sources they used uh, for, the, for his broadcast. Or, or uh, Robert Scott Bell, as well, who posts everything that he's planning to, to talk about and show on, on his website. Uh, so you can go to his website and see exactly what and why he's talking about something. Uh, Joel Skousen also very good about linking everything he talks about in, um, uh, why in, in the World Affairs Brief, uh, which you can go find at theworldaffairsbrief.com. Uh, uh, Mike Adams, the same thing, uh, does a fairly good job of, of posting everything and saying where he's getting his, his information and pointing you to his sources of information. Uh, the New American... Uh, I think the standard in, in research and in and making sure that they don't say anything that can't be backed up. Uh, and so 
Um, so my goal has also to be to to kind of go along the same vein, and sh and which is why um, I will soon be having that website as well as a place where I can can put everything, a la something similar to the Highwall Protocol. I haven't read the full page of his protocol, but certainly having that those sources are part of that, making that available to 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 my listeners as well. Um, and it's it's been. It's been interesting because in this battle, I kind of especially are centered around medical freedom, which I think I feel like is the first step towards um, either we stand up for our freedom or we lose it. And it is it is the first step towards towards uh, tyranny at a much grander scale, if you can't even say what happens to your own body. And uh, um, and in this regard, I felt kind of like that last scene of the rise of Skywalker for, you know, for those of you who have seen it, you're very familiar with that. And, and if, if uh, the last scene when they, when they take down the emperor Palpatine and uh, emperor, for those of you that haven't seen it, um, sorry for the, uh, uh, what do they say about this when you're given the ending um, ahead of the ending, a spoiler. Uh, so for those of you that haven't seen it, I'm sorry. I should have listened. You should have watched it by now. But if you really care, you can stop it and uh, and watch that before you hear the rest. But but you know, at that last scene, um, when all those ships come in and they're going to take out em Emperor Palpatine, the Rebel Navy is extremely extremely small, and they're hoping that someone will come to their aid. And then who comes to their aid? all these huge this huge amount of ships of just people showing up with their ships to help fight against uh, the rise of the emperor which you know he's he's launching this navy that's that's the strongest ever seen in the galaxy you know all these star destroyers you know it just blows your mind away because you see all these this firepower bigger than you've ever seen in the star wars universe and like how could you anyone ever beat this enormous power that he's coming with and then you see all the, the 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 thousands and thousands of civilian starships that show up to help in the fight and take down the emperor from the tyranny he was going to bring on the galaxy. And I kind of feel like that that's that this struggle, this this struggle for medical freedom uh, that COVID nineteen has has precipitated has brought out the civilian starships, has brought out the the, the civilian voices, the non professional voices like myself that said, enough is enough. I'm going to add my voice to this. They're censoring me on every other platform. They're not allowing me to talk. I'm going to talk anyway. I'm going to use every platform I can. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to shout the truth. And they may shut down Del Big Tree on Twitter, but I'm going, to, I'm going to say something on my Twitter account. They're going to shut down Del, Del Big Tree on YouTube. Well, I'm going to say something on, on my other, you know, something else, something else. And it's not just me, but 10 other people. And that leads to 10 other people. You know, even Mike Adams was saying, I'm hoping that everyone does this. And I think it's that same vision is that they may they may be able to censor who they call the, the 12 worst people that are spreading, quote unquote, misinformation, even though they're all scientifically based. Um, and, and they won't say who those 12 people are. But I can I can bet you at least these are among the 12. Sherry Tenpenny, Dr. Simone Gold, Dr. Rashid Batar, um, uh, Ty and Charlene Bollinger. Dell Bigtree, uh, maybe Mike Adams is in there, maybe Robert Scott Bell is in there, um, uh, and and others. You know, I uh, there are, are big names in there. Uh, maybe uh, Andrew Wakefield, um, big names that are science. You know, that are using science to show the, the craziness of what we're going through right now. Um, uh, but if they try to ch shut down those twelve people, well, guess what? There's two thousand of us that just sprung up over the last year. That are promoting what they're saying, that are showing people where to find their information, and they may shut shut that down to one of their sites. But by doing so, they're motivating hundreds, if not thousands, more to spread the word so that people can find where the truth is. It amazes me that people can stand for this for this censorship that is so blatantly obvious, and and not recognize the the dire straits that we are coming in as a country of how really close we are. That this is not a cliche anymore to say that this is we are nearing the tactics of the Nazi regime. We are there. They're doing everything we learned in grade school about how the Nazis put down uh, their resistance, about how they would sell radios with only the approved radio stations 
available on their radios. Uh, only the, the, the state-approved radio stations were able to be listened to. And if you listened to anything else, you were put into jail. Um, the, the natural dialogue that is supposed to be part of scientific inquiry, the challenging of conclusions, uh, the demanding of proof, the searching for, for, for uh, uh, more proof as time goes on, completely squashed by, by the current um, cronyism and oligarchy of, of the mainstream media or, or of those who, who would build themselves as the mainstream media. Um, and uh, that this is, that this, the squashing of, of legitimate um, conversation and then the dehumanizing of those of anyone who disagrees with the official mantra um, is right along with um, uh, with with Nazi protocol, uh, Candace Owens actually posted something really great on her Facebook uh, today, I believe, uh, of, a, of a 2011 NPR article talking about how the what, how the Nazis and the Soviets and everyone else who's, who has committed atrocities against uh, other human beings. They first started by dehumanizing their opposition. By making the other side look like they're not even human and blaming them. In fact, in fact, Hitler actually called the Jews a virus against the progression of, of humanity. And so um, you can see those same arguments cropping up now against those that are, are trying to bring, uh, uh, at least from my perspective, sanity. And I think from anyone's perspective, an opposing point of view based on science, and John Hopkins at university actually came out and said, yeah, the, 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 the quote-unquote anti-vaxxers to the COVID-19 vaccine are, are highly in, a highly informed group of people. Um, and, and that we're being highly informed because the, the default position is to just believe what the government says. It takes work to, 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 to find out why you would not agree with what, every, what everyone is shouting at you to believe. And so you actually have to find out, well, well, what is the problem with this? Where you have to think critically. Well, they're making this sort of claim, but they're not giving the basis for the claim. Oh, I'm going to research that. That takes work. And so, yeah, of course, the people that are against this are the people that are willing to do more work to find the, find the, the truth behind the argument, to find the, the fallacies behind the argument, and to force a conversation, which the other side is trying to squash, just like in... Um, uh, in event 201, you know, that was one of the points that they made was that in order to close down the states and close down uh, uh, travel between borders, they would have to have uh, cooperation of the populace, which meant that they would have to have control of the media narrative. Well, that's exactly what they've tried to do. Um, they've, they've been able to exercise an amazing amount of control over the media narrative. And in the process, creating, uh, a la my previous analogy, this amazing conglomeration of power um, unseen before, and now even um, now even trying to target your private text messages. Yes, uh, if you haven't heard that, I'm surprised you haven't, but look it up. Uh, uh, Biden is trying to target uh, even pri uh, private text messages to keep you from being able to, to share uh, what they bill as... Uh, the communications that they don't approve of, uh, what what they say is misinformation, which is mis misinformation is just saying something different than the official mantra. Um, what used to be uh, prohibited communication about uh, the virus coming out of the Wuhan lab is now actually being talked about realistically because they weren't able to hide the evidence because enough people kept talking about it, like all those names that I just previously mentioned. And then the FOIA request that brought out um, that uh, Fauci's emails, you can thank ICANN for that, uh, Del Bigtree's uh, Informed Consent Action Network, uh, to, to revitalizing that conversation such that those, uh, even the, the other people with radio shows on, you could say, on our side of the um, argument pushing for constitutional freedom, uh, were finally able to pick this up and run with it and, and not be... Uh, too scared to actually talk about it. Uh, but it's because there were people that were brave enough to keep talking about it, to keep asking questions, even if they were going to suffer the demonetization of their channels, even if they were going to lose um, the wealth and power that they had been able to establish. What was more important to them was 
fighting for truth. And as they fought for truth, they were able to stand out as voices that were actually pursuing truth and not just making a buck. And were able to get even. Uh, so I'm not sure how much of that got cut off, but it looks like I was able to catch that cut off and only uh, lost a few seconds. Uh, but so I'll, I'll let me, I will just make a point here is that uh, another another issue that is going to come to the forefront in my estimation is going to be uh, our monetary system. And so if you want to have a heads up on what on the basis of this of this conversation, particularly in the United States, I would highly recommend the creature from Jekyll Island, uh, which discusses the um, the creation of the Federal Reserve. Um, and I'm looking up that author right now. Uh, I should know this, but uh, fortunately, I have um, Google still lets me uh, look this up. Uh, but it's a uh, yeah, that's right. It's a G. Edward Griffin was the lead author on that. Uh, the creature from Jekyll Island. Um, a second look at the uh, well, yeah, a second look at the Federal Reserve, um, and it talks about. How when the reserve first came out, they actually used um, uh, deception in their methods to get it approved by the people as well. Um, the, the the big bankers who were not trusted by the people um, actually came out and, and as a, a faux opposition to the Federal Reserve, and and this is written down in their own memoirs that they made the decision. You can find the evidence of it in the Future of Jekyll Island. Everything referenced. Um, but they, they, many years later in the seventies, they, they admitted that this is what they did, but they, they agreed to come out with full opposition against the federal reserve. And people were able to assume, well, if the big banks are against the federal reserve, then it must be good. Um, and they were, cause the, the, the big banks had tried to create something similar to the federal reserve previously and it had been voted down cause, uh, they, the, the American people knew the big money interests were, were behind it and they, and were not trusted. Uh, but this time they came out as if they were against it, and uh, that part that partially with uh, other other mechanisms uh, was able to bring that to uh, uh, to a, uh, a passing vote in the Congress um, on Christmas Eve, and uh, so so if you want to understand like the real basis of the Federal Reserve before this becomes a huge conversation, I would get that book now and be prepared for the conversation that's going to be happening. I would say probably potentially within six months from now, certainly within a year to, year or two, I think this will be a major element of our national conversation will be our monetary system as they continue to drive it uh, into the ground. Um, and as well as the conversation of what should our monetary system actually look at look like. So back to Bitcoin, which I promised I was gonna, going to discuss. Um, I want to talk about a little bit about this current cycle in Bitcoin. So it started out in, at, at uh, it was running up, running up, running up. It got up to a high of almost 64,000 uh, per coin. It was about 62,000, 63,000 and change uh, was its high for Bitcoin. And around that time, Elon Musk, who previously had been, who, who had made a public announcement that he was going to take a bunch of, uh, of the monetary resources of Tesla and buy a bunch of Bitcoin, uh, which helped, you know, produce a bump in the price um, as it started its climb. Um, and it was very positive about Bitcoin for a while. Um, he comes out and says that um, that he can't, uh, in good conscience, support Bitcoin anymore because of the the uh, environmental cost or something or other. In his words, the environmental cost of, of Bitcoin. And then he makes another statement and in Saturday Night Live to the same effect. And then he makes a follow-up statement. And at, in each of those three statements, Bitcoin takes a dive. And since then, it's continued to go down. So he kind of triggered it at a point that, that Bitcoin analysts were already saying was probably going to be about the top of, uh, you know, the, the, the recent top for Bitcoin. Uh, and so he happened to pick right around, right around that top that, that time to start talking about that as it neared that top that in, in the Bitcoin community, people were already predicting was going to be about the top this time. And he was able to drive that price down. Now, some people new to Elon Musk or, or who haven't been watching him 
may actually believe everything he's saying and think that uh, this is a legitimate turn for Bitcoin because it's, it's so it's going to it's so costly to the environment and it's a good thing Elon Musk jumped on board and is jumping out uh, to to teach all those Bitcoin people a lesson and hopefully squash Bitcoin from ever being successful. Um, and uh, so this uh, a couple of things to observe here about Elon Musk first. Um, so first, throughout the in recent history, uh, in recent history being the last two to three, four years, four years, Elon Musk has been extremely antagonistic against the short sellers of Tesla stock in particular. And he has come out with various different comments to purposely uh, drive those short sellers into the ground. And so one of them uh, that came out was uh, he was complaining about the short sellers, complaining about the short sellers month after month after month. And then he comes out with this statement, I'm going to buy out Tesla privately at a certain amount of money per, per share, and I've got the funds to do it. Well, what happened to the stock? It jumped up really high. It went, it went to a, to a, um, it, ha it had a big move up. And so those people that were, that were shorting the stock, in other words, they were hoping for the stock to go down to make money on it, they lost their shirts because it was a completely unexpected announcement uh, completely outrageous, but the stock market re, um, responded to it. And so everyone that was waiting for the stock to go down, they had sold the stock at a certain price with the idea that they would be able to buy the stock back at a lower price. Well, now the, the stock went way up. And so anyone that had sold their stock on margin had to buy back at a way higher price than they were expecting and lost a bunch of money. And, and Elon Musk was able to get his punch at the short sellers that he had been uh, ragging on for so long and and was upset that they were manipulating the price of Tesla. So anyway, it gets through there. There's some complaints and SEC investigation and blah, 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 blah. Uh, but, but, but Elon Musk goes on. And then um, uh, he, he starts nearing a point where he's about to max out his, his, uh, his stock option benefits as CEO of the company that had that the company had originally drawn up for it. And just as he's nearing that, um, instead of saying something positive about the company, as, as people would probably expect him to do, he does just the opposite. As he's starting to nearing that point, he says that Tesla stock is overvalued. And what happens? Tesla stock drops 10% in one hour. Uh, it was actually probably about two hours. I happened to be watching the market that day and it was really amazing i mean this, this this really you know fairly valuable stock just dropping all this money so so fast and and even bloomberg you know the anchors on bloomberg were all complaining about him well well what does he think now what you know saying that it's it's underpriced well what does he think now you know the, i it's obvious that some of those anchors on bloomberg held tesla stock and were quite upset about his comment but that's exactly what he wanted to do he wanted to do Something that people did not expect, and I can guarantee you, somebody. Oh, I can't guarantee you. I suspect that somebody in Elon Musk, Elon Musk's circle profited handsomely, if not himself, um, from that those comments um, as as Tesla, Tesla took a nosedive right right before he was going to hit you know the the maxing of his stock options because it hit a certain price level. Well, what happened to that? Pretty soon after the after the the reaction to the stock market, um, people realized it was nothing more than uh, than Elon Musk blowing steam again, and the underlying uh, status of Tesla was at least as good as it was the day before, which is still on the rocks. I mean, it still has a valuation way beyond anything it should have for the assets it has as a company and the number of sales it's doing. But at least nothing had really changed. And so within a matter of days, it was right back up to where it was, supersedes it, and bam, um, uh, Elon Musk hits, hits all his gates and he maxes out all his stock options. It hits a certain price and he's like the most successful um, CEO in the world. He becomes the richest person in the world or, or surpasses Bill Gates or something. That, those are the, that was the flavor of the headlines. So he, 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 ma he made this huge uh, jump in his wealth. Uh, around that time, uh, and so and so, f fast forward uh, a little bit longer, and uh, you come to um, 
you come to the S&P 500 was about to adopt Tesla as a as a, as a stock in the S&P 500. And he once again, uh, I won't go into as much detail as this, but but uh, he once again did, uh, uh, made some similar comments that made um, uh, that took advantage of the fact that he could drive it down and then it would go back up with it once it was listed with the S&P 500. And uh, uh, all brought to the point um, that that Elon Musk is good, whether he it's been able to be proven in court or not, whether it's quote unquote intentional or not, or whether or not you can prove his intention or not. Um, the fact is, his his actions um, have been proven very profitable and and also uh, very good at doing the unexpected to those who are trying to manipulate. Uh, the market that Tesla is involved in. He's, he, in a way, he beats them at their own game. So fast forward into Bitcoin. Uh, Tesla has a lot of assets. They made a ton of money. They got listed on the S&P 500. They now have, are, are being flushed with cash. All of their stock value is way worth way more than it was even just a few months ago. Um, they, they, they like, I want to say they, 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 divided the stock by like a factor of five or something, if I remember correctly. Some of you may remember better than me. Maybe it was a five, maybe it was three. But they had a significant division. And it, within weeks, it was the price of the stock was right back where it was before. I mean, they had a, a quintupling of wealth in just a very short amount of time. And so they have all this wealth, all this cash they're suddenly flush with. At the same time, the government is devaluing, devaluing the, the currency of the dollar um, you know, throwing out money like crazy to to those that have access to to the to the main money market, and so they can see the the way the dollar is going. So they convert this cash. They want to convert this cash into something that's more solid, that's not going to lose value. You know, ten days after they get, they made it all, and so so uh, so Elon Musk makes the announcement that he's converting a ton of assets into Bitcoin. Well, Bitcoin then starts making a move. Of course, he was the first person in on that move, uh, but because it's Elon Musk, people listen, and and the Bitcoin starts moving up and up and up. He starts he's promoting Bitcoin, promoting Bitcoin, promoting Bitcoin, and up and up and up it goes. And then it hits about the point where the Bitcoin watchers are saying, "Okay, this is about the spot where if it doesn't continue going past it, it's probably going to turn around right around sixty-two thousand." Well, right around sixty-two thousand. Uh, Elon Musk makes it, it has a change of heart to Bitcoin and says, "What a terrible influence it is on the environment!" And bam, it takes a hit. And then, like a, a good comedian, he come, he saw he had a reaction, so he comes back a second time, and bam, it takes another hit. And like a good comedian, he goes for one last third piece because the, because the last reaction was so good, and he makes another very public comment, and bam, it takes another hit. Um, I used to listen to uh, James Altucher's uh, podcast. It's a it's a very good podcast. Uh, but but he, James Altucher, Altucher, if you haven't listened to him, I'm probably I'm butchering his name. It's hard to it's hard for me to say that quickly. But but uh, he he has this lifelong goal of being a comedian, and so here he is a uh, a very wealthy man uh, doing his podcast on on finances ostensibly, but it ends up being ha- you know half the podcast at least when I quit listening to it. Uh, ends up being about how to become a comedian, and he's inviting all these, you know, comedians and how they became stand-up comedians and sharing his own story of how he became a stand-up comedian. And one of the, one of the things he mentioned in that show was was this this principle of of the 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 comeback three when you have a really good joke and it lands really well the first time, you come back a second time, and if that one lands really well. Then, then you take a you take the risk of doing it one more time and and just and that one won't have quite as much of a splash, but everyone will still enjoy it because they enjoyed the first two so much. You know, I, I that that was that was his discussion on on James Bell Tutor's show. Um, he incidentally actually wrote a very good book called uh, Cryptocurrencies 101, uh, which was the first book to only be sold on Bitcoin. Um, and uh, um, and uh, so anyway. Um, so, so Elon Musk applies this principle uh, to Bitcoin, 
he has a really good reaction the first time. He continues to dog it the second time, good reaction in the market. He, then he does it a third time, doesn't have quite as big of a, a reaction. And then, and then it, it sits down here around 30,000 um, where it's been here for a while. And so my point is, is that Bitcoin, so, and so once again, you know, you've got the people that are sweating bullets. They're like, oh, Bitcoin, I just lost half its value. <laughs> and I want to say, okay, yes, it did. But you're talking about something that a matter of just uh, just a few years, especially when you look at, at in monetary history, just a snap of time was worth a fifth of a penny and is now worth $30,000. And you want to say that Bitcoin's better days have passed. I don't think so. It, it's not, it has not passed and brings me to the original point that I was making at the start which is Bitcoin is fueled by much more than the Elon Musks that want to make money. It is fueled by a desire for freedom, by a desire to that, that what you work, uh, work for throughout your life, um, what you spend your day's work for to, to make an honest day's pay, you're going to be able to keep that honest day's pay and use it the way you think is best for, for your own self-reliance and the betterment of your life and those around you. That's that that autonomy and freedom of decision is what's behind Bitcoin. And so it's not going anywhere. The people who 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 are driven behind this are driven with just as much commitment and desire as the 10 percent of the population that was fighting for the American Revolution. They are willing to go to the end for this to make sure that in the end it is successful because it's not about just the wealth. It's about the dream of freedom. And of course, in order for it to be successful, they will, they will end up being wealthy. But that's not the primary goal. Losing half of, half of the, the value is nothing to them. To them, it's just a speed bump on the way to eventual finan financial dominance on the planet, which they are hoping Bitcoin eventually has. And which I will say is still um, in a position to do. Uh, because of its uniqueness in decentralization, no one has control over Bitcoin. No government's going to be able to shut it down. And if they do shut it down, it's going to be with an EMP that shuts everything else down. But more than even then, more than likely, something is going to survive if Bitcoin survives. Uh, and so they, so so Bitcoin will survive. Um, so I want to address, and 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 I'll I'll just quickly. Um, the, its price point right now before I get into um, to the, the complaints that are made against it environmentally uh, with the energy cost of Bitcoin. Um, and that is that at the 30,000, as, as, you, as you can kind of hear from just a conversation, it marks a pattern. It sat around 300 for a while, and then it went way high to 20,000 and dropped down to 3,000, and then sat around there for a while, went way high to 64,000, and then dropped down. Now it's been sitting around here at 30,000. And so here, if it turns around and if it starts going up, I think you can also expect that once the, court, once the market correction happens on the stock market, that the market correction on the stock market will also be relatively short-lived. Um, uh, so, so over the, last, the, the recent months of the last 36 months um, or less, uh, but, but Bitcoin has tended in the recent, few, recent past to precede the movements of the general market. And so if, if Bitcoin goes up right now, I, I think you can reasonably predict that the, that the market correction that we expect to eventually happen to this you know, parabolic trajectory upward of the stock market will eventually come, come screaming down um, how far you know, no one will, well, actually there are some who are saying exactly how far they think it will be. Um, and so some people are saying about a 30% correction, 50% correction, 90% correction, which are, are basically Fibonacci levels that, that you, know, you can expect it'll stop at kind of one of those levels. Uh, but if, if, if Bitcoin goes up now from the 30,000 level, um, as some are saying this is its new floor and then it will go up from here over the next couple of years, um, that, that I suspect that means that the market correction in in your, your normal futures and stocks is also going to be relatively quick. 
Um, if it breaks down from 30,000, then I think you may be looking at a longer market correction for the broader market as well. Um, and if it breaks down from 30,000, then I expect that its its floor will probably be around 10,000. And I'm not the only one saying this. Um, if you look at uh, you know other news sources um, in the Bitcoin world, they'll, they'll be saying the same thing. Um, and so, um, so that that's just a, a, a you know some quick comments there. But so so I want to address this this complaint supposedly of Elon Musk, a la everyone else that's um, encouraged him to say this or how to say it. Um, that it, that Bitcoin is this this terrible thing for the planet because of all the energy it takes to to do Bitcoin. And so a couple of thoughts I will bring with that is that the it's actually the complete opposite. Uh, for those that are concerned about the the use of energy on the planet and and using up energy and and you know whatever the the uh, the the byproducts are of using that energy and the, and they think that Bitcoin is this terrible thing because in order to create Bitcoin you have to use electricity and basically um, that is the work is the use of electricity and computational power to decrypt each new Bitcoin and that's how you basically come out with new Bitcoin is all the, the electricity goes through a computer does all the computations to be able to crack the code for a new Bitcoin and and as as well as a lot of people don't know it's not just for mining but also for the transactions so when you transact in Bitcoin uh, it's actually the miners are the ones that are getting paid for that transaction there's a small portion of that uh, that goes straight to the miners for making that transfer possible so that's that's why even once all the 24 million bitcoins are mined, on Bitcoin, you're still going to have miners making money, uh, making Bitcoin for mining because they're going to be providing that energy for all the transfer of Bitcoin to occur. And uh, besides all the other, you know, the, the others that may may charge you a little bit of Bitcoin on top, you know. So if you're if you're if your market platform is Coinbase and that's how you're you're exchanging your Bitcoin, well, Coinbase is going to take a little bit of that as well. But primary to the process is the bitcoin miners they're making a little bit for every transaction that happens on on bitcoin and that will happen forever even after uh the the uh, all of the 24 million bitcoins have been mined um and so why is this actually good for the environment if for those that are concerned about energy being used in the environment <clears throat> how is this actually good in the use of energy well first um, let, let me tell you a little bit of a story. When I started looking at this, I was considering Bitcoin mining for a little a little while, and, and and give you kind of this case in point of the mind of mind of a miner, or as they approach mining Bitcoin. And so, as you come as 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 a new miner coming to Bitcoin, it, it was obvious to me that you basically had two limiting factors on your profitability as a Bitcoin miner: a, how efficient was your computer? at using wattage, watts per hour, into computational power. You know, how many hertz or cycles of, of, of computations could it do for a certain kilowatt hour? And so, so one piece of that is you need computers that are really well designed to doing computations. And so there's an industry, um, the most successful of them were the ant computers out of China, um, that that got outlawed and China pretty much chased them out. But but um, but the the that was one piece of it. Is you wanted to the the more efficient your computer could be at making calculations for this one project, uh, the more potential profit you get. And so that's one area where the profit motive in Bitcoin is pushing more and more advancement in computer technology that's able to do these computations. All right, so that's one area. So, so one area as as a Bitcoin miner, you're always looking for the best computer that's going to be the most efficient that can actually uh, mine these coins. All right. The second piece is how much energy are you spending to make those computations? And so the cost of the energy is this huge, huge piece of the pie in your decisions of whether or not it's possible profitable. To be a Bitcoin miner, and so in my position, I started looking, scouring the country to find the absolute cheapest. I'm, I live in the United States, so I was looking for the absolute cheap, cheapest um, 
place where I could buy energy, you know, the lowest amount per kilowatt hour in the entire country. And I found that spot where I thought was the absolute lowest or near the absolute lowest um, cost per kilowatt, kilowatt hour. And I said, okay, if I'm going to do this um, and really invest in this, I'm going to go there where the energy is cheapest. All right. So there is a huge, huge piece of the puzzle and the key for why this is actually good for the environment in case you missed it. And that is that unlike any other monetary system up to now that could care less about how much energy they are paying, you know, for example, Wells Fargo couldn't, they build a big, huge office building, you know, 20 stories high with lights and computers and, and all that kind of thing to run their, their office building. They're not, they're not basing that decision on where they put that building based on the kilowatt hour of energy. They're just willing to burn that energy because in, in the grand scheme of things, the cost of people and pension plans and, um, you know, uh, insurance and uh, uh, proximity to, their, the, to the people that they want to sell to, all that is way, way higher on the scale of where they're going to invest a big, huge office building than the cost of energy per kilowatt hour. But when you're looking at a Bitcoin miner, that is one of the two big major decisions about where you're going to mine. What kind of computer you have and how much is the energy? All right, so if, if you're looking at how much the energy is, step one is to find a cheap place for energy, which is why, why some of the, the places where you've had the most Bitcoin miners, the energy has been the cheapest, which is part of why China was one of those areas because for those people that were there for a while, energy was relatively cheap. Uh, but but in other areas as well around the world, um, uh, it was flourishing in those areas where energy was relatively cheap. And as, as I just mentioned to you, I personally was looking at moving my entire life just to find the cheapest amount of, of energy, I, the cheapest energy I could find per kilowatt hour. All right. So let's say I've now found the cheapest place I could find per kilowatt hour. What's my last, my last option? To, to eke out more profit and to survive. Because that's the, the, every Bitcoin miner knows that the price of Bitcoin fluctuates all over the place. And if you want to be able to survive the troughs, you've got to have a, a, a system that is still profitable even through the troughs and, you know, when, when, the, when the Bitcoin price is low. And so, and so you're looking for, for not – because that's how you're paying for your energy ostensibly. Is, is you're creating Bitcoin, you're mining the Bitcoin, then you're selling some of that Bitcoin at the market price to be able to pay for the energy you're using to mine your Bitcoin. And so if, if that doesn't pencil out, then you're out of business, which is what happened uh, the last time that Bitcoin dropped. It was at 20,000 um, for a while. And then, um, and, then, uh, and, then, and then once it dropped, a lot of miners went out of business. I saw it happen. A lot of miners just they they closed their doors because they did not have a system. They they had a system that could make money when Bitcoin was at twenty thousand. They did not have a system that could any longer make money when when Bitcoin was at three thousand. And so they left the market, um, which incidentally is part of the genius uh, behind uh, this. The way Bitcoin is set up is it's so well to respond to to supply and demand. If you have Bitcoin that's worth a lot. It attracts a ton of miners to help facilitate all those transactions. And then as, as Bitcoin drops in value, a bunch of miners leave. And therefore, as miners leave, it slows down the creation of more Bitcoin. It slows down the number of people that are there to help those transactions happen. And therefore, the price of Bitcoin starts going up until it equalizes, equalizes out to, to something that the market actually wants. Um, and so, so coming back to this discussion, of, of how a miner thinks. You're looking at your computing power. You're looking at your energy. You've, you've, you've found a cheap place for energy. So what's the next step? So the next step is finding a cheaper way to use that energy or, or to make that energy go further. And so one of the, one of the other big concerns, as for, for a, especially if you're running a big operation, is cooling down are your computers that are doing all your com your computing power for you, and so another angle you would find a lot of these big Bitcoin miners were established in very cold places on the planet, um, Scandinavia, for example. 
um, Alaska. They were in very cold places on the planet where just opening your doors could help you a ton in cooling down your computers. And so I started thinking the same thing. I said, okay, I want a place that's cheap energy and super cold. Cold for as long as it possibly can be. I wasn't willing to go to Alaska, so I found the next best place in the United States. I found the coldest place in the United States, and I found that had relatively cheap energy. I was like, okay, so that will that will help me um, uh, cool down my computers at a lower cost. I won't have to pay for the air conditioning. I won't have to waste energy paying for air conditioning. The environment is going to cool it down for me, and I'll, all my energy can go straight to computing power instead of cooling down stuff that I don't want to have to spend to cool down anyway. And then I, f I came across some physicists who had created uh, a version of thermal electricity where uh, between two plates, uh, based on the temperature difference between two metal plates, they were able to create a capacitor, which then was able to create a current um, and provide you electricity. And at the time that I was researching this, it was only it was only heating up like a pot of water. In fact, you could buy you could buy this thing that could that based on the on the difference of the temperature of the water inside of, of uh, a pot that you were boiling, and the outside temperature of the uh, of this pan or pot, you could draw electricity off of it, and you could. Uh, for example, charge your iPad or your iPhone or whatever else you want to do. It was a very, very small scale. But my thinking was, hey, this is what I need. I just have to create a bigger scale of this. I've got a super cold environment on the outside, a super hot environment on the inside. I just get, I just use the same, the same principle of thermoelectrics, and then I start creating my own electricity just based off of my uh, off of my operation. Now it, it probably won't. I mean, it's not going to pay for all of it, but it might. You know, if I become very efficient, and, you know, I had these grand grand dreams. You know, maybe I could get where it, it pays for half of my electric bill. You know, I'm not having to pay for for it to cool down, and I and on top of that, I'm getting electricity out of the, te the temperature differential off of the outside and the inside. I'm creating this new electricity on my own. Besides the fact that I might be able to set up windmills and, and solar, you know, solar panels or whatever, and, and more or less start becoming my own independent electric electricity producer, partially dependent on just my operation, and therefore drive down the cost of, of electricity. And so, why did I tell you that big story? Well, I told you that big story because that's how a bitminer thinks, especially on the grand scale. You don't see a Wells Fargo executive thinking. Oh, I wonder. I wonder what kind of technology we can invest in that will lower the cost of our light bill by two cents per kilowatt hour. Because to Wells Fargo, that electricity bill is such a small part of their expenses compared to the rest of their overhead, they couldn't care less about thinking about electricity. But when you come to a Bitcoin miner, that is their world, or at least that's one half of the world. Is the cost of electricity, and because of that, especially as as the cost of Bitcoin of, of mining Bitcoin becomes greater and greater and greater, and the energy per coin and uh, becomes greater and greater and greater, the desire to maximize your efficiency on electricity goes higher and higher and higher. Hence, ergo, you have these super smart brains that, rather than thinking about how they're, you know, what kind of derivatives they're going to use to hedge whatever these next funds and how they're going to sell it on the next advertisement, their brain power, instead of being devoted towards derivatives and sales and, and how they're going to get the most customers, they're devoting all their brain cells to the utmost, absolute most that they can po possibly pull out to maximizing energy efficiency. And I would submit to you, I'm not the only person trying to come up with new technologies to make cheaper energy in order to mine Bitcoin because that's what Bitcoin's all about is cheap energy. And so in the end, what this is going to lead to is enormous leaps in energy efficiency or energy technology beyond anything we've ever thought before. And it's going to make energy far cheaper for the rest of the world than we would have ever gotten to without Bitcoin. And which ultimately is going to be on the whole of it the rest of the world is going to be spending much less energy for the energy we need. This, you know, the, the, the cost of energy 
and human and, and environmental cost is going to go way down because the Bitcoin people, I submit, uh, or people like them are going to be looking for ways to make energy more available. And it's going to be a benefit people way beyond the Bitcoin community. It's going to benefit everyone as, as these energy systems comes out. So um, those are just some, some things I wanted to share. Uh, Bitcoin is not dead. It, it took over a 50% cut. It may even take a two-thirds cut. I don't think it will. I think it'll go up from here. I think it'll sit at 30000 for a while and then go up from, from there. But I would be thrilled if it went down to 10000 I would be absolutely thrilled um, uh, for it to go back down again. Uh, I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think it's going to go on from here, but it's certainly not dead. Like I said before, this represents something much more than the typical financial talking heads understand. It represents freedom from tyranny. It, and that's what it's about. Uh, this is going to be a freedom from monetary tyranny is going to be a major part of the conversation in months coming up. Um, I would, like I said, probably in six months to a year, that will be a major piece of our national conversation, at least that part of it that they don't censor. And, uh, and so to get ahead of the game, I recommend uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin. Uh, and finally, Far from being the evil, um, uh, or you know, this this great detrimental weight upon the environment and energy uh, that people are blaming Bitcoin, uh, I think it's actually going to lead to uh, great leaps and bounds in energy efficiency and energy creation and the reachability of energy for the common man. And that closes today's podcast. Um, hopefully, it will be much less than two months before I come back again. Uh, like I said, hoping to come back with uh, with a few improvements to my podcast, and I hope to see you soon. Have a good day.